Please join me in John chapter 14, and we're going to go back into the upper room with Jesus. It's on the night he was betrayed, the night he was arrested. It's the very evening before Jesus is going to be crucified. And think of it with me. Everything Jesus is saying that night is of heavy significance. However, we think about all the gospels and everything Jesus ever said, we'd say, well, that's true of those times too. Jesus never wasted his words, everything weighty with significance. But how much more even that night, trying to get his disciples ready for the chaos and pain they're about to witness and experience, everything he says quite intentional here. As we come to John chapter 14, we're going to be reminded of who Jesus is this morning and why we should trust him with our whole hearts. We are going to trust him with our very souls, and in every trial we ever face, we should be trusting in the Lord. So let me ask you as we begin, where is your confidence in this life? Where is your confidence for what comes after this life? Where's your faith? If it's not in Jesus, your faith is in something, and maybe somebody in the room would say, maybe in the quietness of your heart, that you trust in money that your confidence is in how set you are financially. Somebody else might say, well, it's not my money, but it's my winning personality. Such a great personality. See, things tend to work out well for me because I have such a great personality. Somebody else may say it's not that, but it's my intellect. Somebody else may say it's my rugged good looks. Maybe your good behavior. I know I'm going to be fine because I'm such a nice person. Some people, it's their optimism. They actually feel like that they can manifest they'll call it, good things coming to them. If I just manifest, if I think positively enough, good things are just going to be attracted to me. Look, if you're trusting in any of those things, then your faith is misplaced faith. And Jesus is going to use this text to draw you to himself, the one who loves you, the one who brought you here today. It's no accident that you're in the room, that you'd hear how much he loves you, how much you ought to trust him. So let's go together into the text. This is John 14. Let's pick up in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is such a rich text that we have here. So many wonderful things happening here. It's really difficult to know where to start first. It reminds me of what's coming up for us. We have Thanksgiving right on the horizon. One of the wonderful moments of Thanksgiving in our culture is you load up that plate with all your favorites, then the decision. What do I eat first? This is all good. This is one of those texts in the Bible, so much going on. So where do we start first? How about this? Let's start with this. Jesus here declares his deity. Jesus declares his deity, and we see it in the statement, believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus says, trust God, trust me. Jesus is entirely comfortable putting himself beside the Father as one worthy of our faith. So in the same way you're trusting in God the Father, you should be trusting in me. Here's a profound statement of Jesus' divine nature. Now think with me. No prophet would speak this way. If Jesus were merely a prophet, 
He would never speak this way. So clearly, whatever you believe about Jesus, you have to take him out of prophet category. He's much higher than a prophet because he says, you believe in God the Father, you also should believe in me. Now, look where he goes next. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11 now. And he makes the point here, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Let's hear it together. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, And the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Here again, Jesus makes a profound statement about his nature. He and the Father, he says, are one. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. Stunningly, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So here's a reminder of the triune nature of our God. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, next week we'll take on the part where Jesus begins to talk about the Holy Spirit once again. So here's our God who eternally exists as one God in three persons. And we look at Jesus, who is he? He's the second person of the Trinity. So Jesus is the one who is fully God. And in the womb of Mary, he took on flesh, now fully man as well. So he is amazing. He's beyond prophet. He points out here his deity. And Jesus spoke about his deity being God in the flesh in a number of ways, and we see a number of them recorded for us in John's gospel. How about this example? In John eight fifty eight, in that debate with the Pharisees, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. He did not say before Abraham was born, I have been. There was Greek for that. But he says, I am. He's using the title that God himself used at the burning bush with Moses, I am. Am And Jesus, not at all bashful to use that because he knew his divine nature. How about these other statements that Jesus make that made that make him clearly in another category than just a mere man or a prophet or even an angel? When Jesus said this in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world. That's a stunning statement. He's claiming to be deity. How about this one? I am the bread of life. And this one we're going to take on in a moment. I am the way and the truth, and the life. So Jesus declares his deity, and the apostles heard this, understood this, and they continue to teach this. Here's some examples of that. In John 1.1, we read this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or how about Colossians 1.15, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. Listen to this. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
And one other example, we're just talking about Jesus declaring his deity, even the apostles echoing this. How about Hebrews 1.3? Of Jesus, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Jesus. He declared his deity. What do you do with that? What's application for that? Oh, you should worship him. And that's what we've been doing together here in this service. We've been singing praises to him. We are awed by him, and rightly so. He is God in the flesh. So he declared his deity. Secondly, see with me that Jesus, he calls for confidence. Jesus calls for confidence, confidence in him. Notice what he says here. Let not your heart be troubled. Jesus knows the setting. He knows what's coming. He's been telling them, Judas has left to betray me. He told Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. He's told them that it's going to be a time of crucifixion, death, and resurrection. He told that before. They've not understood it. But he's trying to prepare them for that yet again. And here he tells them, all that you're going to experience tonight at the arrest, what you're going to see on the cross tomorrow, I don't want your hearts to be troubled. Listen, if Jesus can give advice to his disciples, knowing all that was about to transpire in their lives, how much more can he say that to you, even in your circumstances, as difficult as they are? Listen, do not let your heart be troubled. How do you do that? How do you face troubles and not let your heart be troubled? Well, it comes back to faith, believing, confidence in him. In fact, this is the context here. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God believe also in me. So in your circumstances, as difficult as they are, keep trusting in him. Deep down in who you are, you're in troubles, but don't let it trouble you at the core. So Jesus telling us this, don't let your heart be troubled. Do you hear the compassion in that? He's caring for his disciples by giving them that word. And so here we want to take that to heart. The Lord knows that in our trials, when we worry, it's not productive. Jesus taught us that we can't add a single hour to our lives when we worry. So he would call us away from something that's unproductive. Don't do that. Rather, trust in me. So it's compassion that he tells us not to worry. But here also, notice it is indeed a command. He knows who he is. He knows he can be trusted, and therefore he commands it. Don't let your heart be troubled. It reminds me when Joshua took over for Moses in the old covenant, and God had to tell Joshua, listen, be strong and courageous. You're going to be tempted to be timid, to be fearful, but here's the command, be strong and courageous. Be strong in faith. And notice to Jesus, it's not an option. He knows who he is, and he knows we shouldn't worry or despair. Knowing him, we have every reason, no matter our circumstances, to be strong and courageous. And this too is echoed throughout the scriptures. How about this? 1 Peter 5, 7, one of my favorite texts, in all the Bible, when I've gone to over and over and over again, how about this one, the Word of God, casting all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Don't you love that? Or Philippians 4, 6, listen to this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a promise. What a command there. 
And then in Ephesians 6, we're even told that we have faith that operates like a shield in our lives. All kinds of temptations to worry, all kinds of temptations to doubt. But here we take up the shield of faith. Believe in God, Jesus said. Believe also in me. So what are you facing in your life? Well, you certainly can apply this truth into your life right now. Don't let your heart be troubled. It's a call to confidence. But also in our text, we see this. Jesus now describes our destiny. Jesus describes our destiny. He begins to start talking about heaven here. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. He knows what's coming. He knows where they are, how brutal it's going to be the next morning. But he takes their minds to another place. Beyond the place where they are, even outside of this world, he lets them know, I'm going to prepare a place for you outside of here. He speaks of heaven. Yesterday was a special day. I went to Lynchburg and met up with Lindsay, my middle daughter, who's about to be married next month. And so I was there to help her and her fiance prepare a place where they're going to live together after the wedding. And so it was nice. It was fun to be a part of that and to share that with the the Price family. And so we were getting the place ready. And we can't take credit like I prepared a place. Really, they were preparing the place and the parents came along to help with the preparations. Let me tell you about the place though. It's in a warehouse, a former warehouse in downtown Lynchburg area and converted into apartments. Let me tell you about the square footage. 598 square feet. So I said, ouch. Uh, I was telling my oldest daughter about that who served as a missionary in Europe. said, well, that's kind of normal for whole families of four and five in Europe. They'll, they'll squeeze themselves into that. So, but it's so sweet. It doesn't take long, by the way, to prepare a place there's only 598 square feet. We, we got it done pretty fast. And I was back here ready to preach today after that. But how sweet that they've prepared a place and we got to help prepare a place. But when we think about what Jesus said, I've gone to prepare a place for you far grander than what they're going to experience in their sweet first home there beginning next month. But even yourself, you think, oh, that's not adorable, 598 square feet. And you think about the square footage you might be blessed to live in. Think about it. But what the Lord has gone to prepare for you, far grander than anything you've set yourself up in right now, as nice as it might be. We're talking in a whole different category how wonderful it is. This is our Lord. He's talking about heaven. And how wonderful it is. Notice how intimate what he's doing for us. He's preparing a place for us, listen, in our father's house. In his father's house, which now through faith in him, our father's house. In this house that he's preparing, our place, he says there are many rooms. New American Standard said there are many dwelling places. There's plenty of room where he is going to prepare a place for us. The old King James had that familiar phrase, in my father's house are many mansions. That's certainly not the best uh, translation of that, certainly not into modern English. The idea is not that he's built a mansion over here for somebody down the street. There's another mansion in distant round. Somebody else is in some mansion over there. Now, he's more intimate than that. He's not giving the specifics here of what your place is going to look like. The whole idea is I'm taking you to my father's house. We're going to be together there, and it's going to be wonderful there. How intimate, how great it's going to be. It's home for us. He's telling us here, I'm taking you home, a place of welcome, a place of comfort, and protection, and provision, and unending love. So there are a number of things here as we just think about the way Jesus describes it here that should be encouraging us. I love this one above all, that Jesus wants his followers with him. That should stun us. That should make us awed at him. Verse 3 again, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, that's beautiful. So think of it in that upper room, 
he tells Thomas and Philip and all the disciples there that were in the room, listen, I haven't forgotten you. And all that you're going to see tomorrow, I haven't abandoned you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and bring you to where I am that we can be together forever. Listen, that's good news for us as well. Because this is true not just for the first disciples, but those who have come to faith through their testimony over the years. The Lord is telling us, I haven't abandoned you. I'm preparing a place for you. And I'll come and bring you so that you will be with me forever. So it's good news that our Savior wants us. He wants you with him. But also it's good news that there is room for you. And that he's the one who's prepared this place for us. And he does it through the cross. So the idea here of Jesus preparing a place is not that for 2,000 years he's been working in construction for you. That's not like he's, I've been working on it. I'll have it ready. By the time you get here, it's ready. That's not the point of this. The point of this is he's making a way through the cross, through the resurrection. His disciples will soon understand that's how he's made a way. That's how he's prepared a way. And then this, Jesus declares that he's the only way to the Father. Look at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And catch this. No one comes to the Father but through me. I love how Jesus here teaching, he brings up the idea of the way. He says, you know the way where I'm going because he knew the response he was going to get. And of course, Jesus, knowing all things, knew that Thomas would be the one who would ask it. How do we know the way? We don't even know where you're going. And Jesus set that all up so he could say what's coming next. And what many of us in the room have built our lives on, this truth of Jesus, where he says, what way is it? I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus makes the claim that he alone can get you to the Father. Only he can get you into the Father's house. And he removes any ambiguity at all when he says this, no one comes to the Father but through me. And that truth also echoes throughout the New Testament. How about Acts 4.12? And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. That's quite an exhaustive and exclusive statement. No other name in all the earth under heaven that can save you but the name of Jesus. Jesus said the same thing, and the apostles kept teaching it. 1 Timothy 2.5, another place where we see this. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There's only one who can save you. And the cross also makes that point unmistakably clear as well. If there were some other way to heaven... Why would there have been the cross? Why would Jesus have left heaven? Why would he allow himself to be brutally treated and crucified if there were some other way that we could be right with God and be in heaven? That would be cruel if that were just one of the ways that humans could go to heaven. So many people have the idea, well, I'll go to heaven because I'm basically a nice person. I mean well, and God knows that I mean well. Therefore, aside from Jesus, I'm pretty sure I'll still go to heaven. That's impossible. It's impossible. The cross proclaims to you that there's only one way, and Jesus has provided the way by atoning for your sins, dying for your sins on the cross, and being raised from the dead. This is the one and only way, the way that Jesus made for you. Somebody might say, no, I think it's by keeping the rules. If I I keep the law, then I can go to heaven based on my effort to keep the law. That's not possible because they already had the law. 
Moses brought the law. And it's Jesus coming from heaven to save us by dying on the cross. If law-keeping could save you, then the cross would not be necessary. But nobody has kept the law. All of us guilty under the law. We needed somebody to rescue us. And this is the love of God. Now, many people have heard that through the ages. And they're offended, by the way, that Jesus describes that he is the only way. People are fine with the idea that he's a way, maybe. But the only way that seems too exclusive That seems unloving, but think of it. God did not owe us anyway. We've sinned against God. We all deserve judgment for sinning against this God. Isn't it merciful and loving that he would provide a way? And what an amazing way it was that God would give his son to die in our place and to raise him from the dead with the promise, if you believe in him, Jesus said, you won't perish. You'll have everlasting life. So don't question the love of God that he would provide a way and this way Through Jesus Christ, you should feel very, very loved. And for him to have brought you here today to hear that message, that you would respond to that, this is God continuing to love you. If you were going to the doctor this week, and there in the doctor's office, if you received bad news about some terminal illness you had, how life-threatening the illness, if the doctor then followed that up, like this is deadly what you have, but if his next words were, but there is a cure, you'd be very relieved. You wouldn't be offended that he said a cure. You'd be thinking, there, there is a cure. That's the good news I was hanging on. So if he said, if you take this medicine, you will be well. You would never retort back, well, what about other medicines? What about other options? How come ice cream won't do it? How come baby aspirin won't do it? How come water won't do it? You, you wouldn't have that conversation. I'm just so thankful. There is a way for me to be made well. And this is the love of God. He provided a way at great expense to himself. God provided a way for you to be saved. And Jesus echoes that right here, makes it clear. He is the sole Savior. There is no other. He says it very clearly. No one comes to the Father but through me. We must know that together. So today, humble yourself. Maybe you're hearing that news for the first time. How did I miss that? Oh, God has opened your eyes today that you would see that. Because he loves you. He's asking you to humble yourself, admit your sin, Trust in Jesus, the one who did indeed die for you and was raised from the dead. Ask Jesus to be your Savior. You'll never find another Savior. This is the one who prepared a place for you. So what have we seen so far? Jesus here in this text, he declares his deity. He calls for confidence. He describes our destiny of heaven. He is indeed the sole Savior. And then finally this, Jesus sends us to go and do great things. Jesus sends us out to go and do great things. That's verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We'll talk about this more next time because Jesus is going to bring up the Holy Spirit and that helps us understand how, how is this even possible that we're going to do greater things than what we see here in the Gospels and we'll see that through the powerful working of God the Spirit. But here Jesus tells his disciples, listen, the cross is not going to be the end. That's not going to be the end of the mission. You're going to be doing great things and I'm going to keep doing great things even after the cross, even after resurrection, even after the ascension. And don't we see it even in the book of Acts? Where on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and 3,000 people were saved 
in one day. What an amazing work of God. There's certainly more to come. And even now, we see the gospel moving from place to place around the world. And so here's a word for us as well. We need to continue with gospel boldness. These are not days to be timid. Jesus said, I'm going to do great things, and you're to be about these great things. I love what he says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So let's be intentional with this gospel. Let's share the gospel. Let's expect God to do big things in saving people and growing people up in him. This past week, it was fun to be a part of something. The International Mission Board has missionaries in training here in the area several times a year. And lately, they have a way of training them is take some of these missionaries and partner them up with some local churches and have them go out and share the gospel right here in the Richmond area. So there were teams scattered across the area, and we had a team working with several of our members here this past week. And I got to go with one of the the teams as, as they went out, and so beautiful to see that intentionality, that looking for people to share with. And so just with the group I was with for one of the days, I got to see them share with multiple Afghans who live in the area. One precious man from Morocco, it was awesome for him to hear the gospel for the first time. In fact, it was interesting. As he looked at the wristband and heard the young missionary share with him, he said, so, so this is Christianity. And so clearly something he hadn't heard fully, heard about it, but he heard the gospel and intrigued. He said, I need to look into this. I need to, I need to study this. I need to look into this. Another man who was originally from India got to hear the gospel this week. Numerous Americans who are native-born Americans here. Uh, so good to see the gospel go out. Listen, we need to continue that, don't we? Not waiting for special occasions, that intentionality, trusting that God's going to use us as we share this good news because he continues to do great things. So what do we do with this rich text here? First of all, believe in him. Trust in him. Also this one, rest in him. Maybe that word was for you this week. Don't let your heart be troubled. Maybe that's the application for some of you today. I I need to be reminded I can count on God in my trouble. But also, let's take the heart here. Oh, I need to point other people to Jesus. While I'm receiving such blessings from him, such encouragement from him, oh, I want to make sure other people know this good news. They, They need to know about this Savior who loves them too, who died for them, who's gone to prepare a place for them if they would only believe. 